0: Good evening, church. Uh, Tonight we are going to be reading um, from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 1 to 30. So pull out your Bibles or your um, Bible app and um, let's read God's word. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep's Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, And those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the voice and come out. And those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me.
1: Um, Let's pray. Let's get into God's word and hear what he has to say to us this evening. Dear Father, we do pray that tonight... um, At the end of the first term, we may be able to still our hearts and focus in upon you. Uh, Whatever distractions uh, are in our minds, that you will help us to still them. Uh, Whatever worries we have tomorrow, we pray that we would um, put them in your hands and focus in on what you have to say to us. Amen. Do you want a change? Do you want life? That was basically the question that a doctor had asked a man who I did the funeral for about... A year ago, 18 months ago, he'd gone to the doctors, and the doctor said, do you want to change? Do you want to choose life? Because the way you're drinking is you're killing your liver. Uh, you will die very soon if you don't choose to, to sober up and stop drinking. And he said, of course I want to change. Of course I want to live. And so uh, for the next few months, he did. He stopped drinking every day like he had been, sobered up and returned a little bit towards health. And then for whatever reason, he decided it was too hard to do. Maybe he just needs He felt he needed alcohol to get through the day. Maybe life really wasn't worth living if you weren't uh, drinking. And so he went back to drinking. And I buried him about a year later. And he left a wife grieving behind. People are complex, aren't they? Um, they think they want to change. We think we want to change. And then the truth is, deep down in our hearts, we don't. And that's kind of a question we see kind of drawn out. Uh, by Jesus in this section. I have three points. Uh, you can follow along on your service sheet. First one is, do you want to get well? And we're going to be in John uh, 5 the whole time. We're not going to, um, you know, going to move quickly through some sections, but we're going to start slowly in, in John 5, verses 1 to 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda which is surrounded by five covered colonnades here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind the lame and the paralyzed the one who'd been there as an invalid for 38 years i do have some pictures fiona you can put them up This is what it looks like. It's still here. I mean, the Bible's historic, right? It's real. And so that is the pool. Uh, You can see the kind of architecture that was popular at Rome in the times with the columns. There's a couple of pictures you can see down. The next one, I think, into the water. Uh, It had kind of sections of pools. Uh, And then one more. You can see it there, stagnant and still. And the idea was, the story was that an angel of God would come down and cause the water to bubble up. And, and when it, it was bubbling, the first who made it to the water would be healed or whatever they, you know, sickness, injury they had. And uh, that's actually in verse 4. You don't have verse 4 in the text, but on the bottom of your page, your Bible probably has verse 4 kind of written down there so you can read it. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. It turned up in about the third century. And my guess is it was a, a margin, a note in the margin to help you understand, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, why people gathered at the pool. And then later, as it got copied out by hand, it slipped into our Bibles. But of course, um, later, we just, it was decided by, by scholars to, to kind of put as a footnote. Now I don't think it was really God doing this. I don't think that's kind of pleasing to our, our heavenly Father to kind of bubble up the water and then have a you know, fight of the strongest. Um, to get down there and then kind of reward the person who beat everyone else to the pool with healing and the rest have to kind of wait it out. I, I imagine it was either a rumor or something, other spiritual forces in play. But that's the story and these people were desperate and so they lay there. And this man had been there 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned, or probably more accurately, when he saw and understood supernaturally that that he'd been... Uh, that. He had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? It's a very strange question, isn't it? Um, you wouldn't ask that in a hospital because it kind of seems obvious. Of course people want to get well. That's why we're in the hospital. You know, this man is obviously going to look very sick. He's been lying there for 38 years. His legs are no doubt shriveled and small and he's dirty and desperate. And, and you ask, Do you want to get well? Are you crazy, Jesus. It's like me offering you, do you want a million dollars? And everyone's going to say yes, I presume, right? We are a stupid question, Jesus. Of course, Jesus isn't stupid. He's so smart. He's smarter than me. And so it's not a stupid question. So we've got to go and read it slowly. What's going on here? And as we read the man's response, we find he doesn't say yes. I mean, that's the correct answer, isn't it? Do you want to get well? Yes. He doesn't say yes. This is a complex, broken man. I spent my week thinking through his mind, trying to understand him. I think what we see here is a man who who isn't sure he wants to get well. That's what Jesus sees in his heart. He sees a reluctance or a fear or cynicism about getting well. I think this man is a victim, and he's got a victim complex. And deep down, Jesus can see that he's not sure he wants to change. He's not sure he wants to change at all. Sir, so he the invalid replied, verse 7. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And when I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He doesn't say yes. There's no yes here, I want to get well. He defends himself. He blames others. You know, when the water is stirred, no one's here to help me. It's not my fault. No one's gonna carry me down, and the others push in ahead of me. They just get in before me. It's not my fault. He blames everyone else. He, he blames the fact that no one's there, that, no one can, that people push in. In a few verses, Jesus is going to come and say, actually, your sinfulness is the reason you're an invalid, at least in part. And yet here, there's no acknowledgement of his own sinful condition, his involvement in this, zero responsibility. He blames everyone else, but doesn't take any blame for himself. I think Jesus sees this deep down. He doesn't want to change. He's a victim, and he's happy to be the victim. I read a, a really great article um, in the Gospel Coalition Australia called Beware of the Dangers of Victim Mentality. It's actually written three years ago, Arcos Bolog, who's a staff member at Moore College. And I'm going to read a quote. I recommend the whole article, but let me just read a quote. It says, I am concerned about the adoption of a victim mentality, mentality like a drug that makes you feel good for a while but then sucks the life out of you. If you have a victim mentality, you'll see your entire life through the perspective that things constantly happen to you. Victimization is thus a combination of seeing most things in life as negative, beyond your control. And it's something you should be given sympathy for experiencing as you deserve better At its heart, a victim mentality is actually a way of avoiding taking responsibility for yourself and your life by believing you have no power, then you don't have to take action. In other words, any bad thing in your life is other people's fault. I think that's what we see here. Here's a man who says that. He blames others. I wonder if you have that victim mentality in your life. Your temptation is to blame everyone for the life you live, the brokenness that you have. The struggles, the sins, the addictions—it's someone else's fault. I mean, it's not your fault. You ended up here. You've been dealt a hard hand. That's true. We we can be dealt hard hard hands in life. And I was reading a, a quote as part of this article um, by an Austrian man who'd been through the Holocaust, and his reflection was that everyone is responsible—not as in the word "responsible" we'd say, but response able, as in you have the ability to choose your response. In any situation you face, you are free to choose the way you react to it. But so often people react as a victim. It's not my fault. This mess of my life, it's not my fault. I, I met a lady and, uh, and she was talking to me and she talked about how she was bullied some, a little while ago, and she just talked with such anger and bitterness about the way it had destroyed her life, destroyed her faith, uh, she lives with this daily, and, and she struggles with it, and it's not her fault that shes um, you know, struggles with social interactions, and, and on and on and the went. And I said, "How when, when was this thinking was it you know, last week?" It was over 10 years ago. The way she talked about it could have been yesterday. Here's someone who'd let that moment. That interaction those 10 years ago defined her every single moment since. And even though people offered to help her change, this wasn't something that she wanted. She didn't want counseling. She didn't want help. But she wanted sympathy because she was a victim. Well, what does Jesus do? He doesn't need a yes. He decides, you know what? I'm going to heal you anyway without the yes. And so he does. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. the man's cured. 38 years, just cured like that. He gets up, picks up his mat, and walks. That's who Jesus is, right? He's just generous with his power and healing. He just loves to heal, and so he does that. People should be happy, but it is the Sabbath, and the Pharisees and religious leaders had extended God's law to include many things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, which included carrying your mat. And so they see this man walking with his mat, and they confront him. They say, what are you doing?" carrying your mat it's the Sabbath, and there were severe punishments for things like that, potentially, if they wanted to inflict them. And what does he do? Well, we know he blames, and he continues to blame. He says, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. It's not my fault. I was told I have to do this. So they said to him, who, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Kind of misses the healing part. I feel like that's the substantial thing in what he just said. He's got healed, but anyway. The man who is who was healed, had no idea who it was, for Jesus slipped away into the crowd. It's not my fault. I'm just doing what I was told. Verse 14. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. It's the only time it happens like this that Jesus will seek, seeks out this guy and says to him, What are you doing? Still sinning. When it comes to our sickness and our injuries and health, for the most part, there really isn't a connection between our sin and our sickness. If you get the flu, it's probably not because, you know, you had road rage the day before. It's not probably the connection. Of course, all sickness flows out of sin in the sense that we're in a broken, fallen world. When sin is gone, new creation, there is no sickness. But for the most part, that's, that's the extent of it. Because we live in a broken, sinful world, we suffer. Though, of course, our sinfulness can directly cause us to get sick. Like my illustration of the drinker. His sinfulness and his drinking and his addiction with alcohol led to him having liver failure. You could be a workaholic, maybe at work or at stu- a student who's a perfectionist at uni, and your study ethic which is f- or work ethic, which is far too great, could leave you broken and burnt out or full of anxiety or chronic fatigue or something. And that stems back to a sinful decision to... To live that way, and so there can be a connection in the way we act. You know, somebody drink drives and runs into a tree. There's sin resulting in injury. And it could be that this is the case with the man. Maybe years ago, he, he was drink. You know, got drunk and hurt himself, or got in a fight and injured himself. Something like that. But occasionally in the Bible, we have moments where sickness or injury is a direct result of God's judgment on sin. And so, in the book of One Corinthians. Paul says the reason that so many of you are sick and weak and dying is because of the health of the church and your disobedience to God, particularly around the Lord's Supper. And we see in the Old Testament too, places where uh, individuals will be sick directly as a result of God's judgment of their sin, or the whole nation of Israel gets a plague because God's judging sin. And maybe that's what's happening here, that God is inflicting uh, this this paralysis of the legs as a result of sinfulness. We don't know. But Jesus is saying, your sin left you here, but I took you out of that place and made you well again. So why are you sinning again? I saved you for holiness. I made you physically well. Now seek spiritual wellness. What are you doing going back? Back to that condition of sinfulness and he says, you know, worse will happen to you. What does he mean? Could be worse sickness, but I, my guess is he means judgment and then hell, which he's going to talk about judgment very soon, as we heard in the Bible reading. Does this man listen to Jesus' kind warning? I mean, Jesus is gone to find him, to save him, to, to, to say to him, you know, whatever sin you're doing, today is the day to stop it. Today is the day to choose life. What does he respond to this, this loving warning. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. What does he do? Straight away he goes and he rats on Jesus, provides to the Pharisees the witness they need to show that this man is inciting work on the Sabbath. There's no worship, there's no love, there's no, you know, please let me follow you. There's nothing like that. He goes off and finds the Pharisees and says, yep, it was Jesus, yep. He's the man. He did it to me. He told me to carry my mat. He's blind to his sinfulness. We go back to that article. Um, Arcos writes, Victim mentality magnifies the harm done to us, minimizes our own sinfulness. After all, we reason our own sin is nothing compared to the other people's sin they've done to us. But except for some circumstances where you're a truly innocent victims, and of course there are truly innocent victims out there. Absolutely. But often we have some responsibility for our situation, some part that we've played in it. But when you have that victim complex, you tell a false narrative explaining that our situation lies exclusively from other people. To put it theologically, Arkos writes, we become blind to our own sin. Furthermore, when we're blind to our own sin, we're blind to the need of a rescue from sin, and we're blind from a need for a savior, and that is a spiritually dangerous situation to be in. I want to ask you tonight, do you want to get well? Do you want to choose life? Uh, I I know in this lifetime, Jesus won't heal all our ailments. You should still pray. But he does promise to help us break free from sinfulness. In Romans 6, he says, we therefore are buried with Jesus through baptism into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised... Raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may be raised to a new life. We know that the old self was crucified with Him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And so you've been given the chance to be free from sin. The question is do you want to be changed? Do you want to be well? Chester in his book, You Can Change, he says this, often we don't change because we don't really want to. You may react to this and say, I've been struggling with this sin for years. For years I've wanted to be free from it and you tell me I don't want to? But the truth is that often what we want is to change the consequences of sin, but not sin itself. The desire to change the guilt and the fear and damaged relationships can be a strong motivation to seek help but in our heart of hearts, we still desire sin. In that moment of temptation, we still think the sin offers more than God offers. I see people this in people's lives, Chester writes. People ask me to sort out the mess of their lives, but they don't really want to change the behavior that creates the mess. People want help with debt, but they don't want to change the idolatry of shopping that creates the damaging spending. They want help with broken relationships, but they don't want to change the idolatry of self, which creates friction. The answer? The answer is always faith and repentance. We need to dig deeper to expose the lies in our hearts and repent of the idols of our hearts. The New Testament language of repentance is violent, very violent. It's the language of amputating, murdering, starving, and fighting. We need to be violent with sin. If we hold back, it's almost certainly because we don't want to be violent towards something we still love. We need to hate sin as sin and desire God for His own sake. You can hear kind of Matthew 18, verse 8, echoing, right? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the fire, eternal fire. It's better to be an invalid for more than 38 years, for all your life, than to, to lose Jesus in the moment of healing and end up in eternity What about you? Do you have sins deep in your life that you've been cherishing and protecting instead of amputating and murdering and blaming others for it? Well, it's not my fault I have this problem. You should see my parents. You should see what I went through. You see how hard it is for me. Here is a, a passage which reminds us to stop being a victim, stop blaming others, and to be honest about our sin and to repent and to tell a different narrative, right? With Jesus the hero, but you're no longer a, a victim. You're a child of God. I took, some photo, I took a photo of the lyrics we just sung before. We were the beggars, and now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, and now we're running free. Are you royalty? Are you living like royalty? Or are you still living like a beggar? You were a prisoner, and you're running free. Are you still a prisoner, though, to your own sinfulness? Or have you chosen the freedom offered to you? I don't think it's... Uh, Mistake, or an accident or an oversight that Jesus does on the Sabbath, that's deliberate because He wants to use this moment to teach. And we come to our second point, the Son follows the Father's lead. Let's go to verse verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute Him. In His defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work on this very day, and I am working too. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Him not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making him equal to God. The Sabbath law isn't a of the Pharisees. That's a real law. You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm exempt from that law. I mean, who is exempt from that law? It's kind of like, you know, in our church, we do want to encourage people to keep Sunday free. You know, be at church on Sunday. But there are some people we don't, you know, hassle. And there are people who work in a hospital or in emergency services because they're essential services, right? They're going to be rostered on a Sunday. Uh, they're kind of exempt from that. And God is saying, I'm exempt because I sustain the world. If you want me to take a break, you all die. So I get an exemption pass. And Jesus says, well, I'm exempt because I'm God. And that's what the Pharisees seek. Jesus is saying, I'm equal to God. I get exemption from Sabbath law because I got to work because I'm always working for redemption and creation and sustaining this place. And they see that and they're offended. And they're offended because he calls him Father. If you've got your Bible there, if you've got a physical Bible, open it up and hold the Old Testament in your hands. So you're going to go from Genesis, right? Table of contents, just open the front cover, right through to Matthew, grab a hold of it. And then if you've got free fingers, in the other hand, a couple of fingers free, grab Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just the Gospels. I want you to see the difference. If you've got a phone, this doesn't really work. I don't know how to help you. It's, it won't really correspond to an app. Who's got it? All right? How big is the Old Testament? It's big, right? How small are the Gospels? Really small. You know how many times God is is referred to as Father in that giant chunk of the Old Testament you're holding in your hands? Thirteen times. You know how many times God is referred to as the Father in that skinny little section of the Gospels you're holding? Over 165 times. Something changes, right? Something changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That's Jesus. Jesus comes and he makes us able to refer to God, Yahweh our Lord, as our Father. Thirteen times to 160. That's incredible. Pharisees are angry at this. Angry at this. And we, we hear about his relationship with the Father. Uh, let's grab a, a couple of verses here. We're going to grab verse 19 first. Jesus gave them the answer. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Let's go to verse 30. By, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself but Him who sent me, the Father. If you're a dad, you love it when you see your, your children reflecting something of you and your personality. You love it when it's good. That's the worst part of your personality, it's kind of convicting, sad, but... If you've got kids and they do that, it's, it's a wonderful moment. And I've seen that a lot of my son recently, Thomas. He's he's on he's almost eight. And he loves sport. I love sport. He loves the Broncos. I love the Broncos. You know, he loves going to watch the Mirable kangaroos play and see, you know, Big Tie play. And I love to watch Big Tie play at the kangaroos as well. He loves watching tennis. I like watching tennis. And then we went fishing together for the first time. And I looked at my son fishing next to me, not catching anything. And I thought, that's my boy. That's my boy. (laughs) Father-like son. Hopeless fisherman. We love it. We love it. And here, the son says, I'm like the father. I'm, I'm actually totally dependent on my father. In fact, I only think his thoughts. I only do what he does. I follow his example completely. I don't have any original thoughts. I, I do what he does. I think this is so countercultural for us. The two big marks of success in our culture, as I was guessing, would be independence and originality. I want to be free and I want to be unique. So independence, right? You, you want to get a job where you have flexibility. Independence. Uh, you want to have the money so you can buy what you want to buy. If you want to buy a house, you buy it. If you want to buy a car, you buy it. You want to have the independence as a family unit, maybe. If you want to move cities, you move cities. If you want to travel the world, you travel the world because you're independent. You're free, and you want to be original. You want to be like everyone else. You want to be different, and so you want to reflect that in your social media. If you're, you know, if if you're in health, you want to be cutting edge, using the latest and greatest technology that no one else is using. If you're Studying in academia, you want your PhD to, be, PhD to be groundbreaking material, not just kind of, you know, brick and mortar stuff. You want to be changing the world. If you're a parent, then you want to use the latest parenting techniques. We want to be original. We, we, we want to be free and independent. And that, No doubt, that's why people like Jimmy Donaldson are I, like the pinup boys of success in our world. Right? Mr. Beast. Anyone know who Mr. Beast is? All right. If you don't... You're missing out. I mean, well, I don't know. I don't really watch him that much, but he's one of the biggest YouTube influencers in the world. The guy is one of Generation Z's biggest role models. Utterly independent. Utterly original. The kind of guy who goes, let's make Squid Games into a real thing without the death. And so he just does it. You know, he makes $3 million a month from YouTube. He has 10,000 subscribers new every day. 10% of the world watches him. It's incredible. He's the pinup model because he's what? Independent and he's original. Jesus says, that's not me. I'm not independent, and I'm not original. I'm totally dependent. I'm dependent on my Father for everything. I'm not original. I don't have an original thought in my body. I just I have the Father's thoughts. Even you get to Gethsemane there, at this moment when you're like, wow, will, will the Father and Son split ways finally as the Son weeps blood because of what he has to do? What, is, what does he do? He says, your will. I'm here to glorify you, Father. And so, originality and freedom is great, but not in your faith. In our faith, we should be proud to be dependent, utterly dependent on the Father and on Christ. And not looking to be original in the way we express our faith, but opening up the Bible and following it and being obedient. Is that how you describe yourself? Utterly dependent. On Jesus and following Him instead of trying to create and cut your own new path, are you dependent and proud of it? Do you long for family likeness? You know, you want to be like Jesus. You want people to say, "Hey, you're looking more like Jesus recently." I've seen that in the way you talk, the way you act. You can't be friends with Jesus. You can't be friends with Jesus if you're not friends with God. That's one thing we learn here. You can't say, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the God of the Old Testament. I mean, I, I don't have any time for that guy. I love Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Jesus loves the Father of the Old Testament. He says, I 100% agree with this, with my Father. Everything you did there, I approve of. I'm I, 100% on board. You can't be friends with Jesus and not the Father. You can't be friends with God and not Jesus. You can't say, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't want to follow Jesus' teaching. It's pretty hard. But I'll work it out with God when I get there. I think me and Him, have got a good relationship. We'll sort it out. It doesn't work that way. can't be friends with the Father without the Son. And you're going to see why, because of our last point. The Father entrusts life and judgment to the Son. I'm going to grab a few verses again. I'm going to start with John 5, verse 21, 22. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life... Even so, the Son gives life to whom He pleases to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to His Son. Verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life, will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He granted the Son also to have life in Himself, and He has given Him authority to judge, because He is the Son of Man. It's like a, a proud dad handing over the, fa- the family business to his son. You know, son, here the keys to the truck and the workshop. It's yours now. I'll put your name on the on the sign. God, the Father says to, the, to God the Son, you know, judgment. The keys of the kingdom, life eternal, it's yours now. That's your responsibility on judgment day. And we need this, don't we? We, we, we need Jesus to do this. This week, uh, I think it was Tuesday, I was sitting in a chapel for Bill Logan's funeral. He's one of our uh, elderly men in the morning church. He passed away. And I was listening to his eulogy. And it started long back. His eulogy started when he was a, a kid and it described his relationships, his relationship with his parents. And it was described really beautifully. I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder what my son and my daughter's eulogy will look like and how they'll describe their relationship with me. And being a sinful parent, I started to feel pangs of guilt and sadness. And of course, I felt thinking about my own children's death and the fact that I hopefully have been long gone by then. I'm not, not going to be burying them. I felt really sad the idea of burying Thomas, Annabelle, or Catherine, or seeing them you know, die. It made me sad. Because death is crippling, isn't it? And this week, we've just, if you've been reading the papers, there's death all over the world. It's a really sad week. And so it, I'm so thankful that the Father says to the Son, here is the authority to go fix it. To go fix it. Go give life. Give the option of life for all who trust in you. All who trust in me. And I'm so thankful that my kids know Jesus. I'm so thankful for that, that when they're buried, and there's a beautiful eulogy saying they have the most incredible parents, I'll be hugging them in in, in heaven. And it reminds me how important it is that we are telling our loved ones about Jesus, because only Jesus can bring life. Only Jesus has the ability to welcome you into the kingdom of life. No one else Father's given to Christ and Christ alone the authority to welcome people into his kingdom. I don't know who it is in your life that you need to share the gospel with. It's hard, right? It's hard. It's scary. I think eternity, knowing that they're in a different place than you, they're facing judgment, that's worse. Jesus is going to call out one day and everyone, everyone will rise. Like when Lazarus is risen, you know, in Jesus says come out of your tomb. It's like waking up. He just wakes up and comes out. He's going to say that one day. Everyone will rise up. For those who have been kind of in, in heaven with God, we will inherit our internal bodies, everyone will stand in front of God and face judgment. And it'll be huge. I mean, studies show probably about 117 billion people have lived and died so far. And there going to be millions you know, raised up on that day. Millions of Egyptians and Greek and French and Argentinians and Papua New Guineans. Sudanese, Fijians, Australians, all raised up and all will stand one by one and give account to Jesus who judges and gives life eternal or judgment eternal. Who will be there? Well, the man by the pool will be there. He'll meet Jesus again. He won't be able to blame anyone on that day. He won't be able to make excuses or explain why he still sins. He'll face judgment. Judas Iscariot will be raised up, Jonah the prophet. Genghis Khan, Albert Einstein, Ned Kelly, Queen Elizabeth II, Shane Warne, Kobe Bryant, Taylor Swift, she's not dead yet, but presuming she will die at some point, Keanu Reeves, despite all the people he's dodged balls from in movies, will one day die. But then God will raise them up and judge them. And you and I will be there. And there's only one way to be welcomed into eternal life, that's faith in the Son the Father has entrusted with the keys to the kingdom. And the question is, do you want this? He he can give it. He wants to give it. But do you want it? He's not going to force you. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to worship him? Are you going to long to be like him? Dependent upon him? On that day, to some he'll say, away from me, you evildoer depart. And for others, he'll say, good and faithful servant. Let's make sure that's what we hear. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that it was included, that we may see a complex and broken man who's not sure what he wants, and doesn't really follow your son at this point. We pray that he did repent one day though. We pray that he will convict us to look at our hearts, to, to, to not hide behind blaming others, but to accept the new narrative that your son has come to save us. In Him is eternal life, freedom from slavery to sin. Help us to be dependent on Him utterly, to follow Him completely, in Him delightfully. May on that day you call out to us, may your Son call to us, good and faithful servant, and welcome us in. And in that time between now and then, help us to live as children, as faithful servants, not cutting our own paths, but depending on you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.